I'm Father Scott Vanderveer, and this is Profiles of Endurance. In 2018, a new restaurant opened in West Cooksaki, not far at all from our two parishes here in upstate New York. It was called Simone's Kitchen, and it was very clean and beautiful and very simple. Just a serving line with some very good smelling fresh food, roasted vegetables, beautiful meats, and all sorts of homemade toppings. Simone's Kitchen was inspired by the Lebanese cuisine of Bashir Shadrawi's childhood, but he took it to another level by employing what he knew about science and about modern tastes into a concept he called Mediterranean bowls. These delicious combinations of protein and fresh greens and grains and delicious toppings. The food is simple and delicious and is contributing to a very happy and well-fed population here in our area. What a lot of people don't know is all of the backstory that went into the creation of Simone's Kitchen. And they don't recognize that actually Bashir was called away from what he originally thought God wanted him to do into this work for reasons that were mysterious, but were associated with healing. How can food be a part of our healing? And how does Simone's Kitchen and the Lebanese cuisine of Bashir's childhood play into that? Only by looking back at the story can we see God's fingerprints all over it. We now are joined by Bashir Shadrawi and have a chance to hear about how this incredible call led to full tummies in our community. Thank you, Father Scott. It's my pleasure to be here. So let's begin with your childhood and about your, uh, your time growing up. Talk to us a little bit about your family and about what it was like for you when you were young. Sure. So my parents are Lebanese from the country, the Mediterranean country of Lebanon. And I was actually born in the country of Ghana in Africa. And the reason for that is the Lebanese people who have endured a lot of uh, hardships through the various wars and conflicts that go on in the Middle East, um, about 30 years ago, uh, decided that they have to make a plan B to find a safe haven where they could uh, raise their families and work and have a peaceful living. And so many families traveled outside of Lebanon into various parts of the world. Some families traveled to the United States, others to Africa, others to Australia, many to South America. And they landed somewhere and um, as many Lebanese do, use their entrepreneurial spirits to start a business and create a living for their families. So my father's side of the family actually left Lebanon and went to Ghana, which is a country in Western Africa. And that's where my grandfather began his business, which eventually became a very successful sawmill and lumberyard. And so my father, being part of the family business, uh, he married my mother. He returned to Lebanon to marry my mother. He was actually born and also spent a lot of time in Ghana as a 
child. Um, he returned to Lebanon to uh, to, to marry um, a, a woman from his background, and that's my mother, Simone. And to, they returned to Ghana together to the family business, and that's where I was born. It's so, so interesting for you to be born into uh, such a different culture. So now you're, you're living in the United States. You've got your, your roots in Lebanon, but, uh, but an early childhood time in Ghana, West Africa. How, how long, how old were you when, you when you left Ghana? I was around the age of six years old when I left Ghana. Um, so my, my family had decided that they wanted to, you know, seek out new opportunities uh, due to some, you know, political conflicts that were happening in Ghana this time around. And so uh, my father had ties to the United States. He had spent some of his uh, early adult years here. Uh, and we decided to, after a short stay in Le- we left Ghana, and after a short stay in Lebanon, uh, we came to the United States in 1999. I was seven years old, and that's when I uh, joined the first grade here, and I've been here ever since. How was your English at that time? I had a very broken English. It was actually very confusing to many of my classmates because, you know, I had a, a, a light, lighter skin complexion, but I actually spoke with a Ghanaian African accent. So uh, it was definitely, uh, you know, something that was unusual especially at, at such a young age, uh, a lot of the kids didn't understand how to, uh, how to you know, perceive that. And so it was a, a big challenge for me to actually fit in and, 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 and um, have friends early on uh, because it was a little sort of, uh, I would say off-putting, but just a little unusual uh, for people to, to experience somebody like me who spoke like me. Uh, my English was, was um, you know, it could be, I could be understood. It's just I spoke a very broken English with a very heavy accent. At that, um, at that time in your life, where was home for you? Where, where did you consider when you would think of, of home, when you, when you had roots in so many different places? Um, you know, it's, it's really interesting, Father Scott. I just, I've never really, I've, I've always taken up where I am currently living or currently stationed. Um, as, as my new home, I'm, I'm very adaptable in that way where, um, if I, if I end up somewhere and I decide that I'm staying there for a while, I start to consider it my new home. I don't feel a sense of, of home to any one particular, uh, location. Uh, I feel a sense of connectedness to all the locations that I, you know, lived in and spent time in, uh, but I don't necessarily have one place that I call home. Fascinating. That's fascinating for us, especially because you carry with you this uh, this deposit of Lebanese culture, and the you know you you're like you're you're a bit a, a uh, uh, ambassador of Lebanon on two feet, even though that's not a country you've lived in for a long time. What about your personality or your family's life reminds you that you are Lebanese? Is there anything particular to the Lebanese people that you have discovered in yourself? Yeah, you know, I've, I've always thought of the Lebanese people as very logical and rational individuals. Um, you know, 
when you have a conversation with a Lebanese person, oftentimes you're you feel like you're speaking at a at a relatively high level in terms of communication. Mm. Um, I'm not sure if the language has something to do with it. I'm sure the culture has something to do with it. But the, the Lebanese people are, are very much very bright uh, people, and you know I feel that they, there's many traits. Um, that the Lebanese people have that, that I that I also feel that I that I have and I can resonate with. You know, the Lebanese are very adaptable people. They have sort of been through uh, times of, of conflict and many different changes throughout the years, and have had no choice but to to adapt to the current climate. And so that is sort of one trait that um, I feel I have because I, I am Lebanese. Um, the Lebanese people are very entrepreneurial. You know, it's 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 very. I'm always very surprised because whenever you meet somebody who's Lebanese, uh, whether it's here in the U.S. or other other countries, uh, they oftentimes are they're business owners and they sort of started. Uh, you know, they're they're self led uh, people who aren't necessarily uh, working for another company, but you know, creating their own thing. Uh, so I feel like you know, as far as as being Lebanese, those are the, the traits that have been uh, sort of passed on by that culture to me. Yeah, great, great traits. And it's true. I think a lot of us, if we if we think back to the families and the individuals we've known who are Lebanese, so many of them are, are business owners. That's so, that's so true. I, you know, one thing that's interesting, I think a lot of Americans, we all, because we live in such a big country that takes up a whole continent, it can be easy for us to, to not kind of be clear on the details of a particular culture that's far away. I think a lot of us, when we think of Lebanon situated in the Middle East, knowing we, know, we vaguely know that it's an Arab country, so we may assume that everybody who is Lebanese is also Muslim. Talk to us a bit about that. What is, what is the, uh, the spiritual and the religious makeup uh, of Lebanon? Are the, are the Lebanese people all, all Arab? Are, are they all Muslim? Yeah, so the, in, in terms of the religious makeup, Lebanon really has a, 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 a big mix of uh, different sects and different religions that reside, but the majority are uh, between uh, Muslims and Christians. In fact, uh, Lebanon for a very long time was a majority Christian country, and I think at this point it's more of a, a 50-50, 50% Christian, 50% uh, Muslim, hmm. and I believe, based on the Constitution, the Lebanese president has to be Christian. Ah. Uh, yes, yes, but, but but the sort of the next level down, I'm not sure if it's prime minister or uh, I wouldn't be a prime minister, but uh, the sort of next level down has to be um, a Shiite Muslim, and then there's another position that has to be a Sunni Muslim. So what you see is that it's, like it's a country that um, has these two religions, I don't want to say living in harmony because there has been a lot of conflict, but the very fabric of the, of the politics is a mix between the two and sort of an, an acceptance on, on some level that both of these religions exist in one place and, and are going to be sort of uh, managed and, and uh, together. So, um, you know, in terms of the Christian makeup, you do have a large, major, uh, a big portion of Maronite Christians and a big portion of or 
Orthodox Christians, Maronite being the Lebanese or Syrian version of Catholicism. So the Maronites follow and are led by the Pope in the same way that the Roman Catholics are here and around the world. And, uh, and then the Orthodox are the second sort of major sect of Christianity. And I've had, I've been exposed to both, being that my father is a Maronite Christian and my mother is an Orthodox Christian. Fascinating. Fascinating. And now for those of us, for those people listening locally, uh, there is a Maronite uh, Catholic church in Watervliet in our area. So there, there are, and I know personally, I've gotten to be friends over the years with some of the priests who've come from there and they, all of them have been from Lebanon. So that's, that's, that's fascinating. How about your, your mother's church? Is there a, uh, is there an Orthodox Lebanese Christian community somewhere locally? There is. There's St. George's Church in Albany. So that's an Antiochian Orthodox uh, church. It's located right off of, I believe, South Pearl Street in Albany. And so I've attended, I've attended that church a fair amount in my childhood and I also attended the Maronite Church in my childhood as well. Wow. Fascinating yes. roots. Fascinating roots. My goodness. And your, so your parents have maintained that tradition through their time in Ghana and into their time into the United States. It's been, that's part of the deposit they brought with them. Oh, for sure. You know, um, just like many other people, um, you know, in, in Lebanon, religion plays a, a, a very big and central part of people's lives and their, their identities are tied in with their religion. So if you're, if, if you're a Maronite or, you know, if you meet a Maronite or an Orthodox uh, Lebanese person, you'll find out shortly after which of, of those two uh, sects they, they, uh, they, they prescribe to. And, um, and it, because it, they, it is very important close to their, to their heart there. And there's many traditions, many celebrations that um, each one of those sects has. So if you go to Lebanon into a Maronite area, you'll see many sort of, uh, you know, celebrations of different saints mm. that uh, Maronites uh, recognize and uh, those also happen many times throughout the year and the same uh, for the, the Orthodox areas as well. Mm, excellent. Excellent. It's, it's, uh, it's a rich tradition. I know for those of us who have any connection to those, those communities, you know it's a very strong and robust faith. A another thing that's very, very uh, rich and robust coming from Lebanon is the cuisine. I, I think a lot of people who've experienced Lebanese food would say it is among the best in the world. It is, it is incredible food, so nourishing, so tasty, and, and really healthy. What is, what's the secret to Lebanese food being as good as it is? What is, what is the magic of Lebanese food? So, you know, first of all, I just want to say that I am uh, completely in agreement that the Lebanese cuisine is one of the sort of best cuisines, or my favorite at least, out there. Um, and I try not to be biased in any way. <laughs> I don't. I don't. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's not that I'm Lebanese or, or that I, it's because I identify with the culture. I just think, I'm trying to be objective as possible, is that the flavors and the, how nutritious the diet is at the same time, it's frankly unmatched, and I've uh, had the opportunity to try many cuisines from around the world. Uh, 
find it to be the best out there. And I think it's because it, the focus has, is on very simple ingredients. Oftentimes, uh, there are recipes that sort of uh, maybe overcomplicate or add an abundance of ingredient, ingredients. Many of them don't mix and, and match well, when in fact, you find that if you just have very few simple ingredients that are grown right from the earth and you, you combine them uh, and add uh, spices and herbs and, and lemon, you find that that's all you need to create something really delicious, but mm. also really nutritious. Um, and the, the Mediterranean diet is a very simple one that's based on fruits, vegetables, fish, various spices, um, herbs, and of course, uh, olive oil. Mm. And that's a similarity that uh, that all of the countries of the Mediterranean have. It's just that the region there and the Mediterranean climate allows for uh, the, uh, an abundance of different vegetation that are delicious when they're served together and combined together. And every single Mediterranean country puts their own twist on it. Mm-mm-mm. And it is. It's it's miraculous. You, I first encountered um, a Lebanese food restaurant when I lived in Albany 15 years ago. I, I lived in the, uh, the Center Square neighborhood of Albany, and there was a Lebanese restaurant there that I have since come to learn was one run by your family. You have a, uh, a restaurant family background in your life. Can you talk to us a little bit about about your your parents' family business? Where where did that idea come from, and and what kind of business or businesses did they run? Sure. So when we came to the United States uh, for a while, my parents worked at a local Italian restaurant, uh, just getting our feet on the ground and establishing ourselves locally, until that they they were able to put together enough money to open their own uh, Lebanese restaurant. And so uh, that was Al-Baraki, which they opened, I believe, sometime around 2005, 2006. And the, the location, the original location was actually in downtown Troy. Mm. And there, my father and my mother worked together to create a menu that was, you know, had all the... Uh, traditional uh, Lebanese dishes uh, that people from around the world have, have known to, to come and to, to love and uh, to know. And um, they, they worked on that business together uh, for uh, many years. Uh, they opened a second location, small sort of pickup window location in Albany on Lark Street. Um, and then eventually, unfortunately due to a to a fire that had to close down. There was a fire in the, in the restaurant next door, uh, which affected that business. So they ended up uh, closing that uh, business down. And uh, my father actually, um, he actually sold the business in Troy to one of his long, long time team members. Uh, and that became known as Beirut. Many mm. people know Beirut, but restaurant in downtown Troy. And ultimately, uh, he opened another location, Al-Baraki location, in Cohoes. So he had the, the two locations, the Albany and Troy one, and um, Albany was disrupted due to the fire. He sold Troy and then opened up Cohoes. So most people are familiar with Al-Baraki Cohoes, which is more of a larger sit-down restaurant that my parents ran 
for uh, several years together, and they had a lot of success. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, due to the, uh, the economy around the 2012 time, uh, they also had to uh, close that location down as there was a drastic decline in, in business. And so, um, but during that time, I, I did have uh, some experience, uh, a lot of experience actually helping them there. I was younger, and uh, so I wasn't involved in any critical parts of the business, but I was there in terms of service and cleanup and waitressing and sort of just helping with, uh, with the back-end stuff. So that was sort of my first uh, time being exposed to the restaurant industry and sort of seeing the inner workings of it. So that means you learned, you learned how hard the work is. Run, owning and running a restaurant is known, it's famous as being a really hard work job. You, you work all the time. Absolutely. Yes, it is. It is a, um, it can be a very rough and, and brutal industry. You know, for one, it's oftentimes, um, you know, we, we, we get degrees or certifications to enter into a particular trade or profession. The restaurant industry isn't one that requires that sort of thing. So many times, um, you know, many, many people will get into something like this, um, just not really approaching it as, as, a, as a profession or a trade. And, and unfortunately, many times what we have is a, a lot of restaurants that um, end up finding out after opening how much of a struggle it is on the back end to, to run something like this. And it requires just as much sort of discipline and study as any other profession that, that you can take up. And um, so I, I was exposed to that myself. My parents did such an amazing job figuring it out on their own mm. uh, when I was younger. And I, and I took a lot of uh, sort of example and lessons from that experience, you know, simply being in that environment and just having a big picture of you, how things operated, uh, ended up helping me when I uh, opened up Simone's Kitchen. Um, and then I, I was able to sort of build on all, all of those experiences in addition to what I brought to the table as well to, to create something uh, that that was uh, that I that I feel has uh, a very well sort of uh, put together and run uh, back end, which is extremely important when you have a, a restaurant. Like just thinking, thinking all the inner workings, mm, mm. all the various while you were growing up and watching your parents in the restaurant business, what were what were your thoughts about your future? What were your plans and dreams for what you wanted to do? So when I was when I was younger, I had you know I, I was I was open to pursuing uh, actually many different things. I for a while uh, had an interest in the sciences, and then I switched for a little while, and I wanted to pursue something in the arts. I was actually uh, thinking about going to film school. I really liked, um, you know, shooting short stories, uh, video recording short stories and making short movies. And in, in high school, I actually won a few competitions uh, for short uh, movies. Mm. And uh, just very simple, simple things that we did in, in cinematography class. But I found that it was something that was really interesting to me and that I did well. So uh, when I first started college, I actually took a mix of arts and science classes, but that's where I learned uh, that my true passion was 
in the sciences, which is ultimately what I ended up focusing on. Mm. And and when you went to, to study, what was what was your focus in the sciences? So my first year in college was more of a, uh, like I said, just sort of testing the waters and, and, and all these different subjects, everything from the arts to music to biology and chemistry. And um, what I found is that I started to focus more on the uh, biology. And that sort of was the most interesting to me and ultimately decided to pursue a degree in uh, biochemistry and neuroscience from the University of Albany. So I graduated in 2017 uh, with a bachelor's in, in biochemistry and a bachelor's in neuroscience. And from there, I had taken a year off to apply to medical school. So generally, for those applying to medical school, they, they graduate with their bachelor's degree and they will take a, a year off to take their entrance exams and apply to various medical schools. You know, just medical schools are application is very involved there's several layers of application you you go to interviews just like a job interview mm. um sometimes you can have several interviews in a row it's a, it's a very uh, sort of uh rigorous process so uh, after graduating in 2017 that's what my plan was for the next year so i was actually uh i began applying to medical school I actually had some interviews scheduled and that's when the idea of simone's kitchen uh, came about so talk to us about that. You you were looking at medical school, which would have been a very, we, we all have an imagination about what that path looks like. You describe the intensity of the interview process and then you do a deep dive. And, and, and then Simone's Kitchen as an idea came up. How do you draw the line between the sciences and Simone's Kitchen? Sure. So Simone's Kitchen actually began uh, during that year when I was applying to medical school, my mother approached me about opening up a, a small restaurant. You know, she, she had always had a love for cooking, uh, and, you know, I was fortunate to, to have that throughout my childhood. Um, you know, like I was mentioning before, very simple, uh, nutritious, nourishing recipes that, uh, that require very little effort to actually create something delicious. So I always had a love for for the Mediterranean food. And when my mother approached me about starting her own restaurant, um, it's, it's really sparked my interest. So I started um, working on that uh, on the side with her. So I started first uh, learning and educating myself about the restaurant industry. Um, you know, despite my father uh, having the restaurant for a long time, I was never really involved in, in the sort of higher level stuff. So I, I, I learned what I could um, online and then I started to develop the concept that's Simone's Kitchen, uh, which is a fast casual, it's known as a fast casual concept. Uh, that is a, this sort of the sector of the, of the restaurant industry. And mm. I worked with my mother to uh, develop the menu. The menu is based on, you know, as Mediterranean inspired. A lot of the recipes are our own take on traditional Lebanese dishes. Um, and some of them are original uh, dishes that we make make using various Lebanese flavors, spices, herbs, and ingredients. And ultimately, we created this uh, array of, of, of recipes that combine really well when put together into what we serve here, which are salads and grain bowls. And so in the process of, of doing this sort of on the side, it started to occupy more and more of my time. 
And a few months in, I started to realize that I was actually very passionate about this thing in the same way that I was passionate, for the same reasons I was passionate about medicine, which is being able to provide a source of health to others at, at a time where it's so easy, unhealthiness is so easily accessible. And so my, actually my focus shift shifted onto Simone's kitchen and, uh, Kuksaki was actually, um, my mother's, uh, find when she was, uh, one time taking a, she took a trip, I believe to Kingston and she came off on this exit and she noticed this empty location in a strip mall. And when she peeked in, she called me immediately and I came down and checked it out. I thought it was sort of a perfect little location that we could afford with this, you know, very sort of low capital startup. And so, uh, we opened our doors in April of 2018. It was my mother, myself, and a family friend on dishes. And <laughs> that's, that's amazing. Your mother and you and a family friend doing the dishes. Yes. Oh. And that was that was the beginning, and we had a, a lot of success very early on. The response was great. We had a buzz in the community, and we also had a lot of guests that would come from neighboring communities to visit us, and. You know, I always say, you know, you can be a, a, a crazy person with an idea, but the way you really know if, if you have a great idea is when you see the feedback that others are giving you. And so when I saw this, the feedback and sort of the impact that we were having on others, just purely providing that experience of, of delicious food, something completely different, something that exposed people to to flavors or or ingredients that they would have maybe never otherwise had that was something that uh was very pleasurable for me and to know that we had put the effort to to make these these meals not just flavorful but incredibly healthy in a way that could possibly you know actually definitely you know uh convince people to give us a try instead of perhaps uh, McDonald's or uh, some other sort of uh, alternative that, that wouldn't be the healthiest for them. That for me was, uh, you know, a, a huge sort of shift in my in my um, in my thinking of how I could sort of impact uh, the community and, and the world through what I decided to do in, in the future. And so that's how Simone's Kitchen really became a passion for me. And ultimately, I decided to withdraw my applications from medical school and focus fully on, on Simone's kitchen. Now, Bashir, I have to say, for somebody who has eaten at your establishment regularly since you opened in 2018, it's so interesting. For I think there's probably some listeners that are thinking, what is this magical food? Can, can you talk to us? I've never had Lebanese food. Is it anything like Italian food? Is it, is it like Greek food? And, you know, I, just to give an example of what it's like to go to Simone's Kitchen in this, as you said, fast, casual concept, you're able to go to this line and everything is right in front of you and it's all made fresh. It's all, you know, clearly homemade food. 
and you get to start off with choosing, do you want some some rice in the bottom of your of your dish? Do you want some whole grains like quinoa or do you want greens? And then you then you pick a kind of protein and whatever you choose is going to be either it'll be a Lebanese kind of chickpea patty, falafel, and or it's which is so delicious and flavorful and a little bit indulgent because it's fried, but you can tell it this is not fried the way you know French fries would be. It's a very different kind of rich, light taste. But you could also have these other forms of protein, the chicken or the or the beef. And then all of these toppings are there, and they are so delicious. And you know, I, I'd like to ask, I've got an example of, of, of the deliciousness. I'd like to ask you to describe to us what garlic sauce is for those who don't know. But, but before we go there, I would like to just say that, uh, that you'll see now in our community corrections officers from the local prisons on their lunch break getting Simone's Kitchen getting whole grains and greens and fresh like t- toppings made with tomatoes and and eggplant and herbs and all these things and if you think about over the course of someone's work life if a corrections officer has for lunch these kind of lebanese dishes over the course of a career instead of getting you know pick up fried chicken pizza you know, the, the typical fast food stuff that's out there, just think of how less often they would need to go to a physician. They'll be so much healthier. So, and, and you do, you're seeing a lot of people from those kind of professions, aren't you? You're seeing corrections officers who, you know, when we close our eyes and think about that profession and the high stress of the job, you don't imagine that a corrections officer finds it easy to eat healthy food during the workday, no. but Simone's makes it possible. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and there's nothing more gratifying than, than you know, realizing that, that you could be having that impact on somebody's life, you know, for two reasons. One, uh, you know, you're providing health to others. You're providing it in a, in a format that's easily accessible, and you're doing it in a way that's really flavorful, right? Oftentimes, you know, if the healthy food is not prepared properly, a lot of times it's unattractive for people, especially when you have something that is so highly palatable, like uh, fried food and, and, and a lot of the other sort of alternatives that are so easily accessible and affordable as well. And so we try to cover all of those bases. And there's nothing that is more gratifying than, than seeing that you're providing that option that otherwise wouldn't be there. But also, it's gratifying to see people open their minds to new experiences and new things that they wouldn't have otherwise there's you know healthy food and natural ingredients uh, oftentimes uh, looked at as uh, things that are, are, are not tasty and you know also exposing yourself to another culture's food is sometimes people can be very apprehensive about that and so being able to sort of open people's minds up by allowing them to try something new and to know that that what they're having is also giving them the nourishment that they need to improve their lives and to go on and do the things that they want to do in their lives with the best state of mind and, and the best health is those those two things are extremely gratifying. Oh, it, it it's 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 true. It's making a big, big difference in the lives of so many people. And and of course, being an entrepreneur 
you are providing jobs. I mean, many, many people that I know as a priest in the community either work for you or have family members that work for you. And I just was speaking to somebody today about the fact that I was going to be speaking with you. And they said, our daughter worked for Simone's Kitchen when she was in high school. And I can't emphasize enough how wonderful that place was for building skills and how patient they were with her and what a great mentor Bashir is in working with his employees. So you're, you're able to make a serious impact. So take me back. I was, I was, I was extolling the virtues of garlic sauce. This is something, this is a, this is something that everyone that I know talks about all the time when they talk about your food. It's a great example of how something can take a dish and just bring it to a whole new level. I usually ask for extra or double garlic sauce when I'm making my choices in your line. But garlic sauce, I've learned, is one of those examples of something that has to be made with great skill, but at the same time is is part of that simplicity of Lebanese food. You would think when you taste it that it has 20 ingredients in it, but talk to us about what garlic sauce is. Sure. So the, the garlic sauce, or we call it creamy garlic, is a garlic aioli. Um, it's, it's called tum in Lebanon. And it's one of the options in our line. You know, you did a, a great job of explaining the various steps of, of creating a meal here. Uh, so you start with a base of grains or greens, and you add a source of protein. Then you decorate with a variety of vegetable medleys, and then you have your dips and your dressings. And so the garlic, the creamy garlic, is one of our dips. And what it is, is it's an emulsification of garlic and oil, uh, to create this really creamy, garlicky, and lemony, almost uh, mayonnaise-looking uh, dip uh, that oftentimes people are surprised to learn is completely vegan. And, <laughs> and what you said is correct. That traditionally, making this tomb is actually not as easy as throwing a few ingredients together. Uh, the emulsification, which is the process of combining water and oil in, in balance, because as we know, when we combine water and oil, they separate. Uh, but if you combine them in a particular way or, or with other other particular ingredients, you can create this balance between the two that creates a very fluffy uh, consistency and the, and also a very tasty uh, sort of crispy garlic flavor. And we've had people who have actually come in here and upon learning that we have just served the last uh, of our garlic dip have, uh, have <laughs> walked, turned around and walked out of the door <laughs> and went to return the next day to, 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 have, to have their serving of garlic. So there, we, we, there is a, a good number of people who, uh, who that garlic makes their meal. And, um, and they, they don't care about the effects on their, on their breath. They'll just pop a fresh <laughs> No problem at all. No um, problem. It's worth yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's a customer that, that comes in almost every day and, and gets a tub of, of the garlic with pita bread and just eats the two together. Oh. So, yeah. Blessed be that person. Uh, now I've got to say, but this is this this typifies the experience at Simone's Kitchen. When you go there, you are tasting something that is is so 
clean in its simplicity. You know, this is this is an emulsification. It's a, a, a garlic and oil and water and lemon emulsification. And yet, so you're tasting something simple, but like you said, there is great skill that is made that goes into making that. Nobody could necessarily do that on their own. It was it was I don't know if it was Lebanese grandmothers or grandfathers who were the typical ones to make the tomb, but it you know you're having something that was was crafted with great skill, was, you know, confected in the minds of these brilliant grandmothers back in Lebanon, but that is something you can rely on every day to be consistent and delicious and make your food, bring your whole dish to the next level. It's the magic. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, what, what we've done is we've taken these traditional dishes of the Mediterranean that are prepared from scratch, prepared with care, with simple ingredients, and brought my experiences from the sciences to create recipes and protocols and methods of preparing these things in a way that is consistent, in a way that that we can manage to serve 100 or 150 meals a day of, of, of this particular thing that is oftentimes takes a lot of time and effort and hands-on to, to get done. And so we've uh, developed sort of modern techniques for uh, creating these things at the volume that we need to, but also, um, you know, maintaining and preserving the freshness uh, of, of, of the recipes and the love and care that, that goes into to creating them. How incredible. I love that. I love that this is such a fusion of, of all of your previous experiences. It's, it's almost as if you could not have created Simone's Kitchen a day before that day in April 2018 because you needed uh, a, uh, a whole lifetime up until that point of experiences and skills in order to do what was needed in modern times to make this, this possible. Absolutely. And, you know, Father Scott, that, that brings up a really good point, which is that, you know, Simone, you, you, can, re, you can reproduce another a restaurant or another business that is similar in scale, similar in, 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 uh, in cuisine, similar in format. But the truth is that anything that you develop or create or any person develops or creates does have their fingerprint, their special experiences and backgrounds that only, uh, only they can uh, put together uh, in the way that they do. And so I feel that this, this sort of, realizing that every person can sort of leverage their own particular and combination of experiences to sort of create something for themselves is something that's really important that really should be instilled more in school because no two people live the same lives. And that means that you can create something that nobody else can in essence. I love that. I love it. Would this, this place would look very different if the creator of it did not have a background in the sciences. Absolutely. It's, oh, it's so right on. That's so true. Which means that every single one of us in our creative endeavors is, is, is doing something that no one else could do. And that's not just because we're all, you know, snowflakes, you know, air quotes intended. It's because we literally were made by our creator to have a combination of skills and influences that cannot be duplicated by anyone else. Yes, and I would like to add too and give some 
credit to my business partner, Sean. So about six months into starting Simone's Kitchen, um, when I decided to make the switch over to focus uh, my all my effort on, on growing this business and this project, I knew that I, I needed a good partner to do this with. So I reached out to my very good friend from college, Sean, who took the same coursework that I did, and we both actually worked together throughout college, graduated with the same two majors, and was also applying to medical school. And I called him up when I decided, made the decision, and he came down and saw what I was doing here, and he was convinced. And so he did the same exact thing that I did and joined me, and that's who I've been growing this business with since then. Uh, we've expanded from our first location, actually taking over the adjacent space in the strip mall we're in, we've broken down the wall and creating, created a nice seating space, which has yet to be used uh, as much as, as we would have liked because of coronavirus, but that's okay. There's there's a lot of potential for the future, <laughs> and uh, you know that's what that, and and so so my, my business partner also brings that science, that experience from his life as well and his background and also the, the sciences as well uh, into what we're doing today. So this this place has a lot of his influence as well. Oh, it's beautiful, and to see the two of you in action together is really you know there's a lot of uh, strategizing and building a better mousetrap, constant improvements that go into watching the synergy that you two have. It's very cool. It's very cool. So, so Bashir, uh, we watched, all of us in the community here watched as you opened in spring of 2018 and we watched the business grow. We watched um, it become, you know, just kind of like common parlance in our town to talk about Simone's Kitchen. Oh, did you get Simone's today? We usually just ask each other, oh, you want? if you're going up to Simone's, can you get me a small bowl? <laughs> you know, we'll say that all the time. We'll say, that's just yes. well known. We watched as the wall between your store and the store next, next door came down and you expanded and we watched that all happen. So how remarkable that it was just two years after you opened your business that you faced a challenge that none of us could have imagined. Coronavirus came, you were two years into growing this business and everything shifted. You, I mean, it was at, at that time, it became illegal, <laughs> you know, to, to gather people indoors. It became impossible to, uh, to, to do business as usual. What did you do? You know, the effects came so quickly and as a big surprise to everybody and especially to the restaurant industry, which suffered a lot as a result of having to shut down, which by all means was the right thing to do to stay safe. But at the same time, it meant that a lot of the business uh, was cut um, at these restaurants, sometimes by 80, 90 percent. And so... Um, we actually experienced that very early on. We experienced the effects of coronavirus with about an 80% reduction in sales. 80%. And yes, that was sort of as soon as the, the mandate went into place uh, that, um, you know, restaurant dining areas were shut down. Um, we saw a very big reduction in, uh, in business. Even though a majority of our business was takeout, we found that 
know, people were scared. They, they didn't want to leave their homes. They, didn't, they were uncertain about, about the future. So um, we were very quick to sit down, brainstorm, and pivot into really what we've become today. A lot of uh, the steps that we took early on saved our business. So uh, the first thing we decided to do was to start offering delivery. We found that uh, people really, uh, you know, preferred to stay home, safe, and sort of isolated. And um, so we decided that we would go to them. So uh, we immediately decided that we were going to start offering delivery. Myself and my uh, business partner, Sean, were actually uh, responsible for taking the deliveries. And we, uh, we enabled it on our online ordering system. And then we started advertising it in, in Kaksaki, in, in the neighboring towns. And uh, immediately we saw our business start to, to pick up, uh, but not to the capacity that it was originally. Uh, we also started promoting a lot of the steps that we were taking to be safe so that we could put people's minds at ease. You know, mm. Our business is based on the well-being of others to begin with. We mm. have high sanitary standards to begin with. And so we were actually the first business locally to start wearing masks even before um, it became a mandate when it was still weird to see people with masks. You know, now we see, uh, we see each other wearing masks and it's just, it's normal. We don't think a thing of it. But back then, if you saw somebody wearing a mask, you, sometimes you would think they were sick or they had, there was something wrong with them. That's right. And it was sort of off-putting. So um, what I did was I, I had uh, masks made uh, that were sort of a, a, a tan and dark tan color so that they wouldn't be very much of an eyesore or so that they wouldn't draw attention to them. And uh, our team became the first uh, business locally to, to start wearing these masks. And this was all part of a, um, a system of things that we did to uh, show the community that we were going to take whatever steps we needed to to make sure that they were safe when they came here or when they ordered from here. Uh, we published a page on our website about all the different steps that we were taking uh, mm. inside our walls to make sure that uh, their food was safe, to make sure that our team members were not sick. Our team members uh, started taking daily temperature uh, checks just to make sure that nobody was uh uh, infected and working with a fever. Um, and then we took additional steps at disinfecting very frequently our space. Uh, we, we actually researched uh, and found the best disinfectant uh, that would uh, that would be effective against coronavirus, but that was that we, we knew we wanted to use so frequently that we that was also safe to our team members because a lot of times we don't think that we think that we're being protected by disinfecting and, and using these chemicals to kill off coronavirus, but we also don't realize that these a lot of these artificial chemicals are just as harmful. And so uh, we found a new disinfectant, main disinfectant that we still currently use to this day that is safe on humans, but just as effective as the 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 most effective uh, traditional disinfectant out there on coronavirus. We started ventilating our space a lot more, and we're actually uh, still doing things today to sort of, uh, you know, continue to to adjust and pivot in the way that the, the restaurant industry is has moved to. I think for the long term, which is a lot of uh, takeout business. Mm. Um, and, mm. 
And so those changes actually allowed our business to not only return to normal, but to actually, uh, you know, increase and improve. And uh, we, we broke sales records since the coronavirus has started, and we've continued to see that increase in business being sustained throughout the, the entire time. Oh, you know, and that excites me so much because a couple of things are coming together here. One of them is another another leadership team that did not have the background in science probably would not have been able to 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 do all that research and to and to know how important that was. I feel like there's another example of of your medical and scientific background coming in here. But I also have to say because people were afraid of contamination, they chose Simone's Kitchen because it was clear that you were on top of it. And so people who may not have chosen Lebanese food before that time, but it was one of the only options they felt comfortable with, then had a chance to fall in love with it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I, 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 think, I think so too. I think it opened the opportunity uh, and gave the opportunity for others to, to who hadn't tried our food to try us and to become exposed to this cuisine for the first time. And you know, the great thing too, which is something that uh, we marketed as well, is that you know, healthy food and a good nutritious diet is the key to a healthy immune system. And so, eating something like the Mediterranean diet is going to be productive for warding off illness and staying healthy. So not only were we being uh, careful in disinfecting, creating a safe space that, that didn't harbor any uh, illness or disease, but we're also putting out a product that helped people build the defenses to fight off any disease or illness that might come their way. You know, I, I think you're you're making such a beautiful point, and, and I think we have to be honest about something here. That our our typical American diet, as we know, is is too high in sugar and in carbs and fat, and is not as healthy as a typical Mediterranean diet. A lot of us don't know or or haven't figured out how to have a, a change in that that's meaningful enough that it can it can make a big influence on our lives. And so, what I'm getting at is, we didn't hear a lot of people during the height of coronavirus telling us to strengthen our immune systems. They were telling us instead to stay away from the virus because we wouldn't be able to, to match it. And there's there's obviously great wisdom in, in saying stay away, keep social distance. We have to break the, the chain of, of, of contagiousness. But at the same time, nothing makes you safer than having an immune system that could even come in contact with the coronavirus and fight it off.
instead. Frankly, the, the, the coronavirus itself we saw was, as with any disease, but especially with the coronavirus, was most detrimental for those with weaker immune systems, the older population as well as those, as those that were immunocompromised. In fact, the coronavirus is deadly because of the fact that the hyper sort of immune response that comes from an unhealthy immune system that is elicited by the coronavirus is what's causing the damage to the heart and the lungs of those that suffer the, the most severe bouts of it. And so strengthening the immune system should have been the very first thing that, the, that, that our leaders did. And so because we saw that that was missing, we really saw an opportunity to put that out for the public, which is why we, we were very, uh, you know, persistent with our marketing of, of the effects of healthy on the immune system. And, and we'll continue to do that for as long as, as we exist. I love it. And I, I just think it is so wonderful that the public has responded the way that they have and that you've been rewarded with success for spreading a healthy lifestyle and promoting this sense. It, it, it's, it's such a good example of you using uh, what could be or could have been a, uh, a career in, in professional, tra traditional Western medicine, but instead coming at it a different way. It's almost as though you've chosen to have the vocation of a healer, but to do it in nutrition instead of pharmaceuticals. Absolutely. Oh. Yes. Thank, thank you for putting it that way. That's that's how it comes to see it too. I love it. I love it. I love it. So this is a good time maybe for us to talk about some exciting announcements that I think you're getting ready to make. A lot of folks know that Simone's Kitchen is in a is in a growth uh, period right now, but it sounds like you've got some new initiatives that are very exciting. Can you? I don't know if you can tell us all of them or we'll take as much as we can. What's some of the growth that's going on for you right now? Sure. So, you know, we have a lot of, uh, we have a big vision for, for Simone's Kitchen, what we hope to accomplish in, in the future. We have a very long list of things, but uh, sort of the, 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 the most proximate one is, is our uh, second location, which is going to be opening in Schenectady uh, later this year. Uh, about three weeks ago, four weeks ago, we had a press release and uh, we announced that officially for the first time. This is going to be in downtown Schenectady. Congratulations. Uh, thank you so much. Yeah, we're, we're very excited. We're very excited about, you know, bringing this food into the capital region, bringing our concept and our influence into the capital region. And especially in a place like Schenectady that is up and coming right now, a very sort of uh, close-knit city, which is sort of hard to come by, uh, and working with really great people. Uh, the Spurgeon Partners are this uh, young uh, uh, brother and sister uh, team of, of local uh, business owner and slash developers, and we're working with them on a location that we're building from scratch to the exact specifications that are going to uh, you know help us run the, the best business possible. So it's exciting. It's going to be our flagship location in the capital region. And of course, our vision is to take uh, take Simone's Kitchen to, to many different places. But right now, our full focus is on you know making an entrance into that uh, area 
and really hammering down our concept and our operation uh, in a way that we feel very com- comfortable and confident with uh, taking uh, beyond two locations. Ah, oh, that's so exciting. It's so exciting. And you, you know what I'm realizing is what I'm hearing out of you, the image that comes to mind is that you and Sean are just jackhammers at what you, the concept that you've created. You know what I mean? You just, you have a concept that is smart and healthy and, and based on good science and based on good business. And you are just jackhammering at it every day. Every day you're working at it. Well, thank you so much. It, you know, a big portion of this is that we're, we're sort of leading our decision-making based on what's going to create value for, for the community, for the people that work in our business, for the people that come into our business, for the people that we source from. Our business, Simone's Kitchen, is here to create value for others. And we want to be a place that people are excited and proud to show to the visitors and relatives when they come into their community. Uh, you know, we want to be a place that helps our team members grow, whether they want to grow within the business or whether they have other aspirations and passions. This is going to be a place that adds to those things and helps them grow personally and professionally. And we want to be a place that supports other businesses where we source from, uh, other businesses that try to do the right thing and also create value for others. And that very value-driven method, that very value-driven approach that we have is really what keeps us motivated to continue to work as hard as we are on Simone's Kitchen. Because without that, um, you know, frankly, I wouldn't want to to have this this business. If we're not a place that's uh, creating value for the community and for the people that are within uh, the business and that are being influenced by the business... Then, then this is not a business that I would want to have. So as long as we exist, as long as Simone's Kitchen is functioning and alive, that's that's going to be true. Oh, I love it. I love it. What a what a, you're you're basing everything on such strong intention and such uh, such really clear principles. It's it's beautiful to talk to somebody whose vision is very clear, even. Even if it's not a vision that I've ever heard before or, or have known to share, when you speak, you speak with a conviction that uh, I think draws us in. We want to be, I think all of us want to be part of something that is going in a direction. I think that's one of the things that causes me to be involved in religion and spirituality because I know that creation and evolution is going in a good direction and it's directed by a higher power. And so I want to be a part of that. And it feels very much like that dynamic is at work in, in your call. I hear it. I hear it. Yeah. So thank you very much, Father. And that's not to say that there isn't uncertainty involved in the decisions that we make or in how uh, we're going to accomplish what it is we want to accomplish because there is, but it is that vision uh, that fuels you to continue going. And then what you realize is even though you don't always have the answer, as long as you continue to to grow and keep your eyes and your ears open, that answer will come to you and you'll figure it out. And that's something that I've realized over and over again since the time I started Simone's. Oh, I love it. I love it. So I there's some young people I'm sure that are listening that are hearing and they they uh, they're they're not that far behind you. May I ask what's your what's your age right now, Bashir? Twenty eight. You're twenty eight. Is Sean is Sean also twenty eight? 
Sean's 27. He's 27. So the two of you in your late 20s, all this momentum going, you, uh, you're you not kids anymore, but you've still got tons of youth on your side. There might be somebody who's 10 years younger than you right now hearing this, and they want to take a page out of your book. What would you say to a young person who hears the way that your path has taken you and wants to be a part of this or wants to somehow emulate that? What would you say to to your younger self, uh, the the 10-year-ago sure. version of you? Absolutely. So let me just say that I'm not sure that I, I, I definitely don't have a, a fully written and completed book. I think I'm still in the first few chapters here. Uh, but one thing that I, I can say is that I have learned a lot in those in those first few chapters. Um, I think I would circle back to the to the idea that we just spoke about, which is that as long as you have a vision and you're value driven, that is the reason that you're pursuing what you're pursuing is has real meaning and resonates with you on, on a deep level. Then you don't need to have all the answers. You just need to keep your eyes open and keep going, and eventually things will fall in place. But what I would say is keep your mind open. Don't keep your vision fixed. Don't keep your eyes fixed on the same outcome or the same vision. Oftentimes what will happen in the process is you'll, you'll realize something new or a better way to do things, or you'll real, realize an entirely new vision that's, that, you, that you build on your older one. And so make sure that you are ready to not ready to, um, or, or you are you are open to making those changes or um, following that new vision that uh, has come about purely by on, on your way, on your path, and while you're learning all of these new things. So be, be adaptable, be ready to to change and to see things in a new light, and ultimately, as long as you're being honest with yourself and you're doing things for uh, meaningful reasons, uh, the outcome will be great. I love it. I love it. You know, out of curiosity, something is urging me to ask this now. Your parents, the name for their dream that they that they realized was Al Baraki. What is the meaning of that? Al Baraki is wow. You know, they would be very upset with me if I. If I'm drawing. It means, I believe, goodness. Ah. Or bringing goodness on somebody or something. It's, you um, know what, yeah. It, it sounds like, the, I mean, I'm thinking of, I, I don't know Lebanese, but I know that um, those, those sounds, um, you know, uh, uh, Baruch in, uh, in, in Hebrew and um, Barak in uh, some of the the languages of the of the Mid East, it feels like those are always words around goodness and blessing. All of those words that make that sound are about goodness and blessing. Absolutely, and you have al al, which is the prefix or prefix meaning Allah. So maybe blessings of God or or goodness from God. It just strikes me that um, that your parents had this vision and they they passed it on to you, but you couldn't, because you're an individual, you couldn't take exactly what they did. But so the name of your business pays tribute to your mother 
and that generation that passed on so much to you. And yet you're taking it with what you need to do in your own life and your own time and this generation. Absolutely. I just love that. I just love that. It's, it's very inspiring. Uh, and, and I think we're all just so blessed to hear it. It is, it is a, an Al-Baraki. Uh, we're, we're almost out of time. So just a couple of final questions for you. One of them is, uh, you, we have all heard the, the, the phrase, everything happens for a reason. A lot of people live their life guided by that. And as I hear your life story with all of the, the roots in Lebanon, the early childhood in Ghana, the, uh, the coming to, to the Albany area, your parents starting a restaurant and having the business shaped and sculpted by forces beyond their control, a fire in the restaurant next door, you know, things, things that have ebbed and flowed. Your mother, for some reason, getting off at, at the Koksaki exit of the throughway and being led to what became Simone's Kitchen. Do you believe that everything happens for a reason? Or do you think that, that, that it's, it's a little more random than that or, or there's a little more um, kind of open-endedness? What are your thoughts about that phrase that so many people live by? So I think maybe I would approach this more from an entrepreneurialist um, perspective, which is that uh, it's, more, it's, it's, more, it's your responsibility to create that reason. So it's through your vision, through your sort of open-mindedness and your positive uh, interpretation of, of what happened, no matter what it was, whether it's something challenging or something good, you can then uh, learn the lesson from, from a particular thing, a set of experiences or a lifetime of experiences and utilize that to create something uh, valuable. And so, you know, I would say it's, Oftentimes, when something does happen, oftentimes when we say everything happens for a reason, sometimes we're talking about some of the hardships that we endure. Um, I would say that the the it's it's more of an active rather than a than a passive uh, approach that I have to, to that. Uh, and I would say I, I would I would say what is what is the thing that I can take from this lesson or experience and use it to continue growing and, and creating value. Mm. I, that's, I've never heard anyone say that we, we create the reason and, uh, that's powerful. Yeah, it's powerful. I, I so appreciate that perspective. Uh, last question for you today. What for you has helped you endure through the twists and turns of your life, your life journey on, on two continents, um, but also um, in the business since since 2018, and then and then being rocked by coronavirus and having to to find your way during unprecedented times. What in the midst of all that helps you endure? What's your key to that virtue of endurance? Sure. Um, you know, I think that I wouldn't be the first to realize that a lot of the accomplishments or rewards in life really have and derive their meaning from the struggle and the process uh, that it takes to get there. And for me, realizing, especially when my heart's in the right place and especially when I'm, you know, this goes 
back to being value driven and I'm, so I'm doing something with good intentions. For me, it's not hard to come to terms with the struggle or the, the energy that it takes to, to accomplish something. I think ultimately when we accomplish something and we receive a particular reward or outcome, I think all the value of that reward or outcome is from the steps that we took to get there. So when I am enduring, when I am trying and putting in effort into a particular thing, I oftentimes make sure that I'm aware of that fact so that I'm enjoying, in a sense, enjoying the struggle or seeing it in a, in a very productive way that makes it very easy to handle, um, much easier to handle than not having that perspective on it. And you know, ultimately, I think you find that when things are sort of handed down, to you or when you receive things easily, right? If you, if you just hit the lottery or, uh, you know, you, you just receive something that you didn't feel that you put enough into to earn, you know, there's many people that enjoy those things. Of course, there's many people that, that will get hit the lottery and, and, and go out and, and uh, do all the things that they wanted to do uh, in their life. But I, I think you will find that there's, it, it, it's much more superficial in that sense and that the things that are most meaningful to us, the, the rewards, and the outcomes that are most meaningful to us involved a lot of struggle and endurance to get to. And so uh, on realizing that, um, I always find myself uh, thinking about that sentiment uh, when I am going uh, through a struggle or, or, or have to go through a period of, of endurance. And that has fueled sort of all of the uh, effort that I put into everything that I do. How, how helpful. Yeah. If, if in the moment as we're struggling, some would even use the word not to be dramatic, but suffering, you know, in the, in the lowercase s version of it, you know, as we suffer through the struggle of uncertainty, if we can in that moment say, this is money in the bank, so to speak for my dream. This is an investment. This is what makes it worthwhile. This is learning that will be used. What a gift that is. What a gift that is. Absolutely. So I'd like our listeners to take just a second before we conclude to just savor some of the things that we shared today. This has been a really big blessing in, in, its, in the richness of the content of what we've shared. So I'd like to just take a second so that we can savor it, cling to it much the way we would uh, a dish of, of wonderful Lebanese flavors. <laughs> which uh, is, is one of the, my, my favorite ways to spend a day. Let's just take a second and consider some of the things that we've heard and savor them. How about that, that journey for the Shedwari family from Lebanon to Ghana to the United States? What about that spoke to your family's history? Whatever it was that brought you to this country, what was it? that allowed your ancestors to have the stamina, the endurance to bring you here. What are, what are the unique contributions or fingerprints that you're putting on your dream right now? What are the things that, that you are able to, to sculpt into the dream that maybe was handed on to you incompletely and now your job is to complete it? Bashir told us that he felt the leaders of our society missed an opportunity in the midst of trying to protect us 
to also encourage people to use the momentum they had found to change their lifestyle for the healthier, to make their immune systems the first line of defense against illness. What are some missing opportunities that might be going on right now in your life or in my life that we can pay attention to and not let pass us by? As Bashir said, he doesn't feel that he's written a book yet that young people can take a page out of, but he has written some chapters in the life story that will become his book. How do you feel that your path is a bit like a flashlight shining in the forest, not yet able to see the final destination, but knowing that as long as you have a vision, as long as your values are intact, you don't need to have all the answers. How can you find value in the uncertainty and in the struggle? Bashir Shadrawi, we are so grateful to you. Thank you for taking this time with us. Thank you for sharing the story of Simone's Kitchen and your journey up to this point. We are so excited to journey with you toward the the fruition of this of this great goal thank you for your time with us today thank you father scott it was it was my pleasure and thank you for all of, uh, the love and support that you've provided us with as well with joy with joy with joy and with garlic sauce <laughs> <laughs> and thank you to all of our listeners may god bless you all